Matthew chapter 1. We're not, you don't need to turn there. If you'd like to, though, turn to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. But in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew was betrothed to Mary. They were in love and they were going to get married. Joseph. Thank you, Justin. Joseph and Mary. Not Matthew. Joseph was in love with Mary and they were going to get married. And lo and behold, she came up pregnant. And Matthew, Joseph, was a good man. And he sought to put her away quietly. He, he didn't want it to be a big deal for the whole town necessarily to know or whatever. He was trying to do her right. No doubt he was heartbroken because he had not had relations with Mary. Yet, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This time of year we celebrate Christmas. That very first Christmas, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. While originally created in the image of God, humanity was in relationship with God and glorified God and enjoyed God. And yet, the entrance of sin into humanity caused a massive rift that reverberated through the ages and in every single human heart. Those who were in relationship with God, that relationship was now broken and there was alienation. Those who glorified God, no longer. We no longer glorify God and give thanks to Him, but rather we turn to all kind of other things to give our attention and our devotion. No longer enjoying God, but rather giving ourselves to what the author of Hebrews would call the passing pleasures of sin. Sin entered into the human race and caused all kind of problems. And so ever since Genesis chapter 3, apart from being reconciled to God, what every human heart needs is at least two things. Forgiveness of those sins that caused the rift such that one might be reconciled back to God. So forgiveness. And then secondly, help. A power to live no longer for one's own glory, but for the glory of God. A new power, no longer to keep looking to sin and the passing pleasures of sin, but a new kind of power that would give new desires to love God and to follow God. Every human heart, ever since the fall into sin, has been in need of forgiveness and of help. 
Where does it come from? How do we find it? In Acts chapter 2, I want us to look, and it's going to have to be brief, but we're going to look at the very first Christian sermon that was ever preached. Peter preached it, and when he will get finished with this sermon, some in the crowds will say to him, what must we do? And his answer, he'll give them an answer, and what he will promise in his answer is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Let's watch the sermon in chapter 2, verse 14. Now let's take a run up to it. If you're new here and you're not terribly familiar with the New Testament, we're in the book of Acts, which, which the book of Acts takes up the story. After Jesus died and rose from the dead and even ascended into heaven, what happened? And what happened was Jesus ascended into heaven, and then in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. He sent his Holy Spirit into the lives of his people. You see it in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You can go listen to last week's sermon if you'd like to about the gift of tongues and all of that. But all I want to make the point this morning is this was the time. This was the day. Jesus, having lived and died and risen and ascended into heaven, he then sent his Holy Spirit into the lives of his people. They were given a miraculous ability to proclaim the mighty deeds of God in languages that they had never learned themselves. And certainly that would have been a wonder to see and in verse 12, all the people, they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. These guys are drunk, was the accusation. And now in verse 14, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, there's eleven disciples, apostles, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. It appears Peter sees himself speaking as if he's a prophet of the word of God. And his message is not merely to be considered, but it is to be heeded. It is to be listened to and responded to. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. It's kind of a funny line. It's one of the funnier lines in the New Testament, I think. Hey, they're not drunk. He's correcting a misunderstanding here. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. The first thing that Peter is going to say is that this which you see and hear is that which Joel prophesied. This which you see and hear, the Holy Spirit, 
And this miraculous ability for these people to speak in languages that they had never learned. Peter says, what is happening right now is exactly what Joel had prophesied would happen. Verse 17, and he's quoting from the Old Testament now from the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. and Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. Two times over, pour forth of my spirit, pour forth of my spirit. We'll see it again later in the passage. And they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Here's what I think is going on here. Joel, the Old Testament prophet, as they often did, prophesied of the day of the Messiah when the great deliverer of Israel would come. And he saw it as a single mountaintop. The coming of the Messiah, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was what they were longing for, the very presence of God among them, and the judgment of God's enemies, verse 19 and 20. What he did not realize, as most of the prophets did, and, and became evident as Jesus came and inaugurated what he was going to do, but did not yet fulfill it in all of its earnest, is that once you got to the top of that one mountain, you realized that there was actually two. And I believe Peter is saying, what you are experiencing and what you're seeing is just like Joel said was going to happen whenever the messianic age came. God was going to pour forth his spirit on all mankind. Sons and daughters, old and young, bond slaves and free. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Holy Spirit would come upon some of God's people, but not all of God's people. One of the great powerful things about what God is doing in this age through His Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is for all of His people. For young and old, men and women, bond and slave. It's universal for all who will come to Him. And in verse 19, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. I think this is Joel looking to the latter part of this messianic age. When the Messiah would come, he would pour forth his spirit one day to come again. I think these words like blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun turned into darkness, the moon into blood. Those are words of a coming day of judgment before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, the second coming of Jesus. Now, in the meantime, verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so he quotes from Joel, uh, what is this that's going on? Ah, they're drunk. No, this which you see and hear is that which Joel prophesied. 
That a day would come when the Messianic age, the Holy Spirit of God would come. He would fill God's people and they would prophesy. And there will be a day of judgment related to it as well. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in verse 22 and following, he says, let me back up a little bit. And so he does. And this is a profound walk through, if you will, of the person and work, or we might say the career of Jesus Christ. Let's watch it quickly. In verse 22, we will see the life of Jesus. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. Jesus the Nazarene was attested by God. The Gospels record 35 miracles that Jesus performed. Miracles over disease, miracles over deformity, miracles over the demonic realm, miracles over death. At his mere word, the miracles performed. They're called powers. Miracles, powers is a better translation because that is what they demonstrated was the incredible power of God at work through Jesus Christ. They're called wonders because that's what it produced in the heart of those who saw them. Wow! Who can do such things, they would say. And they were signs because they pointed, they signified that this indeed is who he claimed to be. And so Peter says, Jesus was attested by God in your midst just as you yourself know. In verse 23, though, his death. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Gracious. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was attested to you by the incredible miracles that he performed, in your midst, which you saw, powers and wonders and signs, Testing that this is the one you nailed to a cross. He was delivered over. Maybe a reference to Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve who betrayed him. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, let's make sure we note that the death of Jesus Christ was no accident and it did not take God the Father by surprise. This was all according to the plan. He was crucified before the foundations of the world. 700 years before he came on the scene, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord was pleased to strike him. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. The godless men in this context were probably the Romans. But as one said, the Romans drove the nails, but the Jews drove the Romans, but God drove the Jews who drove the Romans who drove the nails. This was all according to the plan of God. This one who was attested was crucified. 
But in verse 24, his resurrection. But God raised him from the dead, raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is awesome. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony or the birth pains of death. The idea is just as a woman goes through birth pains and eventually comes forth life. So too did Jesus, but it gave forth to his life because death could not hold him in its power. We sing of that. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. And I like when we sing, then bursting forth in glorious ray, up from the grave he rose again. This one who was attested by God, but who was put to death. God raised him again. And Peter understood that this had been prophesied as well. He's quoting now from Psalm 16. A psalm of King David. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover my flesh and my My flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. I think David, King David, the one from whom the Messiah would ultimately come as he wrote Psalm 16, he was expressing his confidence that God would always be with him, that God would, that he, he himself would eventually live forever in resurrection. But as he wrote it, and as the New Testament authors began to look back into the Psalms, and in particular the Davidic Psalms, because remember, God made a promise to David that from you one will sit upon the throne of Israel forever. And so they would look to the Davidic Psalms and they would see patterns and they would see things that were coming to fruition in the life of Jesus and they would go, there it is. And in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So he was attested by God in his life, but he was crucified. But God raised him from the dead. And then in verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, If you were with us earlier in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, Jesus was alive from the dead, spending time with his disciples, giving them final instructions, and then he ascended into heaven. And the early New Testament authors, the apostles, reflecting upon that, and in particular Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand they understood that that's exactly where Jesus Christ had gone. Into the presence of God to sit 
It's metaphorical language at his right hand. The right hand in biblical language is the place of honor. It's the place of authority. It's the place of power. It's a place of rule. Reign. That's why he speaks of it in the language of exaltation. This is Peter. The Apostle Paul would say it like this. Speaking about you and me and how sometimes we wonder, can anything separate us from the love of God? And Paul said, who is the one who condemns Christ? Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Paul would say, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I love this one, the author of Hebrews, speaking about Jesus. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. After he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, exalted to a place of authority, power. And from there, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see in here. He brings it all the way back. What's going on here? They're drunk. No. What you see is what Joel said was going to happen when Messiah comes in the last days. That Messiah would come and he would pour forth his spirit on men and women, young and old, bond slaves and free, and they would prophesy, they would proclaim the mighty deeds of God. Jesus, the one who was attested to you by God through the powers and the wonders and the miracles, you put to death. But God raised him from the dead because death could not hold him, just as David the prophet foretold. And he's now exalted to the right hand of God. And he's the one who has poured forth what you both see and hear. Verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, from Psalm 110, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's an implication in there, isn't it? We already saw from the quotation of Joel that a day of fire, blood, smoke is coming. A day of judgment. 
And it's not politically correct to talk about, but all you got to do is read through the pages of Scripture and it is there over and over and over again. That this one who lived and died and rose and was exalted to the Father's right hand will one day come again. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know. Therefore, let all of Katie know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Interesting. Way back in 21, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the Old Testament context, for Joel, the Lord was Yahweh. Here, Jesus is being equated with God. Whenever you read in the New Testament of Jesus being the Lord, He is one with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Let everybody know this one who lived and who died and who rose and who is exalted and who is one day coming back, he is the Lord. He is the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah. He's the one that all men must deal with. And therefore comes verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were convicted of sin. Peter said to Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? I think they understood the, the language of Joel, of, of the blood and the fire and the smoke, and they understood the implication of until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. They understood that that day is coming. And so they, what, well then, what do we do? How are we saved? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I, along with others, think that the thrust there is each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. Just real briefly, I don't think 238 teaches that in order to be saved, you, believe, you repent and believe in Jesus and get baptized, and then you'll be saved. I don't, this, this is one of those texts that makes you scratch your head, but what you realize is that the rest of the New Testament is absolutely clear that we are not saved by anything we do. We're, we're saved by what Jesus Christ did, and we, we, we trust in him. And then we make it public through baptism. What must we do? Repent. Turn is the word. From here to here. 
from an attitude toward God that would put him upon a, his son upon a cross to an attitude that would say, I need him. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. Promise of forgiveness and the promise of the Holy Spirit, the very person of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. To all of God's people who have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, His very presence comes to abide and to, to give us new desires and new inclinations to want to be pleasing to God. It's a little bit out of place, but maybe it's worth noting. You know, last week we briefly looked at this idea. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. And we talked about that and the four different views generally of how people take that. On occasion, not very often. But over the years, I've been asked, is Redeemer Community Church a spirit-filled church? And I said, well, that depends on what you mean. I think I know what they mean when they ask it. Do you all speak in tongues? That's generally what the question means. Are you a spirit-filled church? Do your people speak in tongues? And I answer that question whenever I'm asked it. I say, well, it depends on what you mean. If what you mean by spirit-filled is that the people of Redeemer, on the whole, practice the gift of tongues, now, then we're probably not the, the church for you. Though if you do, nobody's kicking you out of here. But if you mean filled with the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If that's what you mean by Spirit-filled church, then I sure hope so. Because I think that is one of the main reasons the Holy Spirit of God was given to us. It's not so that we would speak forth in miraculous gifts like tongues. It's so that we husbands would love our wives as Christ loved the church. And we would be patient and we would be joyful. We would be men and women of peace and of kindness. Jesus Christ offers to any and to all, young and old, men and women, bond and free. Verse 21, all who call on the name of the Lord, he offers the forgiveness of sins and his very Holy Spirit to empower you for a new way of life. This promise is for you and your children. For all who are far off, as many as the Lord, will call to himself. And that day many believed. Some 3,000, Luke tells us in verse 41. It's time to go, but let's close with this. Have you ever asked the question of verse 37? What shall I do? Repent. Turn to Jesus.
There's lots of words that are used in the New Testament to describe this act of faith. It's repentance. We turn away from ourselves to Jesus. Um, here in just a minute, receive. We, we receive Christ, who he is and what he's done. Um, believe is another one. John, the Apostle John uses that one a lot. We, we believe in him and who he is and what he's done. Faith is another one where we, we trust in him. So there's lots of different words the New Testament uses to describe the same thing. And as we said a few weeks ago in our previous series, each one of them, if you will, they're, they're active in the sense that you repent or you believe or you trust in. They're active in that sense, but at the same time, they're completely passive. Because Jesus is the one who does it all. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died upon a cross to pay for your sins. He rose from the dead. He's victorious. He offers forgiveness. He offers the Holy Spirit. And we, we trust in Him. We believe in Him. We receive Him. We, we repent. We turn to Him. If you've never done that, friends, you must. In just a few couple chapters, in a few weeks, we'll see it. Peter, this same Peter will say, let it be known to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man who he healed, stands here before you in good health. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's because he's the son of God who came for sinners like you and me. Lived, died, rose, exalted. One day to come again. And in the meantime, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we Thank you and bless you for your love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In this was love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son. We bless you for your love. That some 2,000 years ago, your son would, would take to himself flesh in the virgin womb of his mother Mary. And the angel would say, this one will save his people from their sins. We thank you. And Lord, I pray if there's any here today who've never turned from themselves or whatever else it is they may be trusting in for the forgiveness of sins and for the help they need, we all need. If they've never turned from that to Christ, would you, as verse 37, would you pierce their hearts even now and cause them in their own quietness of their own soul. What must I do? And then God, would you 
incline their heart to Jesus Christ. Crucified, risen, exalted, the Lord of all. We'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.